Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Nexus Pro. Nexus Pro is an annual or monthly subscription where members get exclusive writing, podcasts, and invites to members-only Zoom gatherings. You can find info on how to join and support the podcast at nexuslabs.online. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the Nexus Podcast. Episode 45 is a conversation with Leon Werfel, founder and CEO of Bueno Systems. We talked about Bueno's founding story, the analytics market today, how Bueno approaches analytics, and how analytics itself can go mainstream and finally cross the chasm. This was a ton of fun for me. Please enjoy Nexus Podcast episode 45. All right. Hello, Leon. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah. Uh, hi, James. Thanks for having me. I'm Leon. I'm the CEO of Bueno. We are a SaaS company in the property industry enabling the transition to a centralized and data-driven sustainable operational model. All right. We're going to unpack what the hell that means in a little bit. Uh, <laughs> can we start uh, with your career history, though? Uh, how'd you get into our space? Have you always been in our space? What's your What's your educational background? That kind of thing. Yeah, um, I have. So my career history, uh, I started out actually as a sustainability engineer, okay. um, working in the property industry. So my first job out of uni or college, depending on which audience we're speaking to, was working for an engineering consultancy and my job was basically going around and finding ways to tune up buildings, you know, optimize what what they had uh, in place, what what their their existing systems were, look at capital upgrades, all that kind of stuff. Okay, cool. Yeah, um, it was a a small consultancy. I think I was employee number five um, when I joined and they, they grew to maybe 35 or 40 people by the time I left. But yeah, I mean, we were basically doing the same kind of stuff that we do uh, in Buena, but, you know, the um, old-fashioned way. Okay. So That's how I started we my doing... career as well. I don't know if we talked about that before. Okay, cool. I'm glad we got that in common. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not very fun when you're actually in the weeds doing it without analytics. Uh, yeah. You know, human analytics, right? So, <laughs> so like when, when I started out in the industry, you know, you were lucky if, and I'm not even that old, right? Like when I started out in the industry, we were lucky if a BMS front end had a USB port. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and we were trying to get data off these systems. And the way that we would do that would be anything as crude as taking a screenshot of what the values yeah. were at any point in time and dumping that onto a USB key to put on some, some poor like graduate engineer's desk to do data entry on. Or like we didn't have a USB key, actually taking literal screenshots yep. with a camera yep. so that we could spreadsheet this stuff and run some formulas and then hopefully figure out, um, you know, figure out some ways to make the buildings run better. Absolutely. Yep. I did that for a very long time too. Okay. What'd you do? <laughs> what'd you do after that? Well, um, so I, I guess I wanted to talk about that for just a little bit more because one thing that was really interesting about that was, um, and I, I kind of wanted to point out like a bit of a difference between the Australian market and maybe uh, some of the other yeah. property markets in the world that might be of interest to some of yeah. your listeners. But so Australia was the first country in the world to have a performance-based environmental rating system. So as opposed to like, I, I would kind of separate all of the rating systems into like two 
broad buckets. One is like either feature-based or performance-based. Okay. Um, lead would be something that has come from like a feature-based background where if you have certain you know, features, design features or things built into your building, then you get credit points. Whereas the system in Australia is called uh, Neighbours and it rates your performance. And it's something where you have to recertify every 12 months, you know, with your last 12 months, energy bills or water bills or indoor environment quality measurements and all that kind of stuff. And that has really been um, foundational to creating a market expectation around performance. People want performance rather than features in the Australian property market. Interesting. Which I think is why, you know, you see a lot of Australian kind of prop tech companies. I think it's created a really good environment, a really sophisticated environment in terms of the market's expectations around performance, which has then led to people being pretty open-minded to adopt different kinds of technologies that they want to try. Really fascinating. So, um, you know, I was really proud of the work that we did, you know, when, when I was an engineering consultant. You know, I was, I was very heavily involved with one specific client. And at the time, you know, we felt like we were delivering some really good results for, for them. And that was recognized. They were the number one ranked property portfolio in uh, the global real estate sustainability benchmark for three years in a row when that started. So that was something that I was super proud of being involved in, uh, you know, at that kind of point in my career. It was very, it was very rewarding. Really cool. Really cool. And so where'd you go next? Did you start Bueno right after that? or? Uh, I don't know. It's a bit convoluted, like how I got here. Um, <laughs> bear with me. Um, so I think that while I was working as an engineering consultant, I read a book that people are probably familiar with called Four Hour Workweek about starting a hobby business on the side. Um, and I actually did it. So while I was okay. working full time, I started this hobby business. Wasn't Bueno. Um, okay. It was actually uh, an online retail business selling different kinds of supplements around improving like your, you know, your cognitive performance, other kind of aspects of your biology. There was a bunch of movements going on at the time called like the quantified self, which was about using different kinds of electronics and stuff to measure and quantify different things about, about your biology and your, your health and you know, your performance. Uh, so I got in really deep with that stuff and uh, started this online retailer around it. And, you know, one of the first products that we were selling was, I don't know if you've heard of Bulletproof Coffee. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we were the first ever wholesale customer of like the Bulletproof guys and spun this thing up and was really into it. And, you know, it's kind of a common thread because, you know, I was using data to optimize building performance and then, you know, I was using data to kind of optimize my own performance. So I was really kind of eating my own dog food there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was great. I mean, it, it was something that, you know, it, it seems like a very interesting thing to work on, but really I kind of ran out of a bit of steam with it because at the end of the day, running, you know, an e-commerce store is basically running like a physical store that just happens to be online. So okay. yeah. I learned a lot about the business side of things and built up my confidence to eventually start Bueno. But yeah, the, the purpose wasn't there to kind of keep me motivated to keep, keep working on it. Okay, cool. I'm actually surprised this is the first time that Tim Ferriss has been brought up on this podcast because he was a huge influence in making me want to start this. So we're like a year into the Nexus podcast now. I've been listening to Tim Ferriss's podcast, who, for those who don't know who Tim Ferriss is, he was the author of the four-hour work week that Leon just mentioned. But I've been listening to his podcast for, I don't know, 10 years, however long it's been going on, uh, huge influence in just like the, the reason I wanted to do this kind of one-on-one interview, you know, style of, of a show. Uh, so that's really cool to, to know that, you, you know, you read that back then. And he just did an episode with Guy Raz where Guy Raz from How I Built This just sort of unpacked Tim's story of the four-hour work week and starting the supplement business and all that. 
Well, that was, yeah, that was my um, aha moment about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. It's, it's funny how many people can trace back to that book as being a very influential, um, having a very influential impact on like you know, their, their career trajectory. Absolutely. That yeah, it, it made me like really, I would say it made me a little bit miserable in my job at the time, but it kind of set me along the path that I'm on today, which is, you know, growing and, you know, building and being an entrepreneur. So that's awesome. Yeah, well, congrats on the uh, one year anniversary. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks. I think, I think Tim's on like episode 600 now. So this will be like episode 40 something. So got a long way to go. Um, <laughs> Cool. So that was a little bit hairy in terms of like managing the e-commerce site. And so then what happened? Well, I was basically working full-time in my day job. I was running my e-commerce business out of hours. And also at the same time, I just saw this opportunity that so much of the work, you know, like we discussed it earlier, right? So much of the work that we were doing as engineering consultants was very high value, but it just didn't need to be such hard work. Uh, you know, by the time you get this analysis done, uh, once you've spreadsheeted all this data, it could be six or eight weeks out of date. Maybe half those problems are fixed. Maybe it's just um, the information wasn't readily available when people need to do something about it by the time you've actually done the work. Um, and also, you know, really, you probably needed some engineering smarts to understand what you were doing the first time. But after that, it was really just kind of turning the handle yeah. over and over again and seemed like a pretty ripe um, target for you know, doing better and automating. Totally. So, so I, was, I was working a day job. I was running the e-commerce site out of hours and I was also working on the business plan for Bueno. Um, so it was a pretty, pretty intense couple of years for sure. <laughs> oh man, I'm sure. <laughs> wow. Okay. And then, yeah. So you started it? What, what yeah, happened? So then, uh, so then Bueno. Uh, so I, I definitely saw the opportunity. I didn't think I could do it without some funding. So I went and spoke to some investors. Um, originally, they turned me down. Um, okay. You know, we, we see the same future vision as you. I'm a mechanical contractor in Australia, um, ended up being our strategic kind of co-founding investor. They, they had the same vision. They said, we're, we're doing this ourselves. You know, why would we invest in a separate business to do what we already want to do ourselves? Okay. That was pretty um, deflating. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I went away, kind of kept doing the other stuff and working on the business plan. And then um, about a year later, got the call saying that, hey, we, ha we haven't actually got this as far as we wanted to in the past year. I think the only way to actually do this is break it out as a separate business outside of our main business that can prioritize working on this so yeah a year later after originally pitching it to them it got off the ground <laughs> oh that's awesome and what year would this have been that was 2013 so the first day of operation was the first of july 2013 got it got it okay and then you and i met in 2017 at i don't know if you remember at the haystack connect conference in tampa florida um, you and Tyson, and there were, there were a couple other people from, from Buena there. Uh, so that was the first time I, I had heard of you guys. And I was super impressed by everything you guys presented. You guys did like four or five presentations at that event. Uh, we had several alcoholic beverages, uh, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been kind of following you guys ever since. Um, you want to just dive into, I want to save my favorite questions for a little bit later. Do you want to dive into what's Bueno stand for? Um, and why did you decide to name it that? Okay, so Bueno, um, it stands for Built Environment Optimization. So the BU from Built, EN from Environment, and the O for Optimization. Very, um, very creative. Yeah, and well, I thought that it was pretty clever to have yeah. an optimization company and name it uh, good 
really, like good in Spanish. And really where that came from was at the time, you know, very influenced by what I was reading and I was reading the biography of, of Steve Jobs and he talked about when he started Apple, there was so many literal, like a lot of his competitors were named things that were very literal. So, hmm. you know, international business machines or micro software, right? So <laughs> uh, you want something that was a bit different and that was kind of my way of emulating someone that I was kind of like interested in at the time. Okay. All right. And, and you guys, I, I know that at least at some point you decided to build on top of SkySpark. What was the reason behind that? And what's the state of that today? Yeah, I mean, we started, and this is kind of part of the journey that we went on to understanding, you know, the need for a whole product. So, you know, really when I started, you know, at the time being quite naive, the value that I thought I'd bring to the industry is, hey, I'll do all these like kind of spreadsheet analysis of different building systems. Uh, I know all these really smart ways to identify, you know, like if a VAV damper is stopped or, a, you know, a valve is leaking or, or what have you, or whether, a, um, you know, chill water temperature reset could be optimized to get better chiller efficiency. And so I thought a lot of the value that when I could bring was in coming up with those kind of like high value rules. Mm-hmm. And so starting out with SkySpark and building like a set of rules was, you know, a, a logical way to kind of, you know, effectively bootstrap that kind of solution. Right. And yeah. so we started out with SkySpark, started out delivering managed services off the back of that. And then very quickly realized that that wasn't enough. Um, it, okay. it, number one, it wasn't enough to get the results that we needed. And number two, you know, we very quickly decided that being a services business would limit the amount of impact that we would have on the, the industry. And that's something that's really motivating for me. Like we've, we're a very purpose-driven company. Um, you know, our, our purpose statement is to realize the dream of a sustainable future through data. And as a service company, you know, we've got a bottleneck in terms of like our ability to scale to service the industry. So that's, we also decided we wanted to be a SaaS company too. Okay. So going, sorry, going back to your original question, we started out, we thought rules, rules are where it's at. Let's, let's write some really smart rules. Um, we then kind of realized we needed to have scalable in- infrastructure. We need to be based on the cloud. So that was kind of an infrastructure piece that was happening like as we started. And then, you know, you, you have a, a, a rule, a hit on a rule, who's going to do something with it? Right. So how are you going to take that piece of information? It's valueless if no one does anything with it. So how are you going to take that piece of information and put it into action? So the first uh, client-facing bit of software that we built um, around like, of our own platform was a workflow management system. So this was like basically a light CMMS that sat off the side of the analytics engine mm-hmm. and enabled people to track what was going on and where. And, um, you know, that's kind of evolved over the past few years. Now it's, um, you know, it exists for people to help get started with our platform, but in reality, we're much more, uh, a much more optimized installation of our solution is to integrate with whatever enterprise CMMS is already okay. in place. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so then we realized we needed to, a way to manage the workflow. We needed to be able to scale our platform. We needed some dashboarding and reporting and some ways to articulate the value of what we were doing and some ways for people to drill down into, be able to take a top-down approach to asking questions about their portfolio too. Uh, and then one of the downsides about starting up with starting with SkySpark was that it uses a proprietary programming language. So uh, we then realized that we needed to do some more work in the data science space, that we needed to build an interface to be able to do some sophisticated data science with um, you know, Python instead. Hmm. So we have over time added the different elements that we think enable us to get better value, um, to, to get what we need out of the data in terms of the uh, results of analytics and run more sophisticated data science. And 
really like a focus now is in integrating to other enterprise systems and kind of changing the way people look at this type of solution to being an enterprise software solution rather than just something that you sell uh, one billion at a time. Absolutely. So, so, I mean, how you just described how you got started is the way a lot of people get started. I think a lot of people don't move on <laughs> from how you got started. And so then, you know, they sort of just get used to using analytics as a tool to provide better services, right? And what you're saying is, hey, we wanted to do something different here. And I think that's really in like, in my mind, like what's unique about Bueno, you guys have decided a long time ago to be SaaS first and scalable first and not a services business. Um, so basically what you guys do then is partner with service providers then that would help implement the tool or building owners that have internal service providers to help implement the tool? Like, how does that work? Yeah, totally. So we've got partners that we work with that, um, you know, service their, their customers' buildings and they use our software, like, basically to run their operations center so that they can deliver their services better okay. or deliver some other value-added services. And we've also got, yeah, like you were saying, those kind of direct customers who would be vertically integrated in terms of their own facilities management, and they will use our um, platform to run basically an, an operation center to manage their own buildings better. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, I want to, I want to save the whole product conversation. I have some specific questions around that. Where are you guys at today? Like you started in Australia, you're worldwide now, you know, how many buildings, what stats can you share? Cause before we talk about how analytics can go mainstream, I want to talk about like, where are you at today as one of the leaders in this space? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of those kind of key stats, like numbers of square feet, numbers of buildings, et cetera, and we used to track like very religiously, you know, but we actually kind of turned that on its head because we realized that those look more kind of like vanity stats about our business rather than ones that were aligned with what our purpose is. Mm-hmm. And so the stat that I'm really excited about is that we've got the equivalent of 2% of Australia's energy consumption represented on our platform. Wow. Right? Cool. And that's, that's, awesome. that's really cool. You know, I think that like I could roughly say that we've got about 2000 buildings. I could roughly say we've got about 200 million square feet on our platform. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what we're concerned about is making a difference yeah. and, you know, having some kind of positive impact. So that's the really important uh, metric for us is that, you know, like let's say we can save 10, let's say 20, 20, 30% of that. That's like a meaningful and with, with our team of people, that's a meaningful change that we can make and a meaningful positive impact we have on the, on the world. Absolutely. That's amazing. And that's a good jumping off point for like talking about how analytics can scale. So you guys are one of the leaders, I think, in terms of built, you said 2000 buildings, something like that. A couple of thousand buildings. That's one of the leaders from my standpoint. But a couple of thousand buildings is not like there are six I think there's 6.5 million buildings just in the US alone. <laughs> so like, we're, we're not really scratching the surface in terms of taking your 2% in Australia and like getting that under monitoring uh, of some analytics product worldwide, right? So yeah. I wanted to talk to you about how this thing can scale, how this model that you guys have built can go mainstream. And one of the questions around that was like, how can analytics providers build the whole product and you kind of hinted at how you guys have done it. So you guys have built a path to get work done, right? So you, you built a lightweight CMMS and now you're talking about integration to other CMMSs. So could you expand a little bit on what you mean by changing how this product is viewed, changing 
how it integrates with other enterprise tools. What, what do you mean by that? Because I think there's some, some current trends there that would be good to unpack. Yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll just take a step back. Um, okay. Just to clarify, when I was saying the 2% of Australia's equivalent of Australia's energy consumption, that's if you take our international portfolio and kind of roll it up oh, to get okay. that 2% figure. So got it. Okay. Um, we've got a lot of buildings in Australia, but we are in countries around the world. Just to clarify that. But yeah, I mean, like you said, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, <laughs> yeah. what, we, what are we talking about doing with this kind of product? It's um, taking data from operational technology, running algorithms uh, that have effectively codified engineering knowledge in, in either a heuristic or an ML-based way, right? And then right. that gives right. us a piece of information. And from there, um, that's great. It's good to have interesting information, but it doesn't do anything for you unless you do something with it. And really the way to ensure that something is going to get done with that piece of information is making sure that that information turns into an action that is then fed into somebody's hand, fed into somebody's workflow in whatever the native way is that they do all their other tasks that they're doing in their job. Totally. So if you've got a technician that's out there on the site and they've got their job management system or their service app on their phone and they're working through kind of what all their other preventative or reactive tasks are on that, and then they've got to get out their laptop and log into some other system and remember to do all this other stuff so they can do their FTD or their analytics stuff. That is not, it's never going to work. You know, yeah. you're only ever going to appeal then to these people that are really engaged. I mean, at the end of the day, it shouldn't matter whether this has come from a preventative task list, it shouldn't matter whether this is a reactive job or something that's been identified with an algorithm, it should all feed into their workflow in the same way. And that's why I think it's really important because it's important to get the value and it's important to make the process of identifying some kind of insight through to action being taken as frictionless as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think when people approach it from the sustainability driven, you know, like people don't understand that this isn't just an energy efficiency or just a sustainability problem. It's a workflow problem. It's a people and processes problem. Uh, so it's really refreshing to hear you describe it in that way. Yeah, and I think this is another area where like the whole industry has its blinders on, right? It's got yeah. kind of tunnel yeah. vision in that, you know, really we see the benefit that what we can deliver is, you know, a sustainability benefit, but the way to get there is through evolving like an archaic preventative operational model and making it data-driven. And preventative doesn't just exist on HVAC, right? Preventative right. doesn't that there's a hell of a lot of other engineering services that we need to bring along with us to a data-driven model, but that's elevators or water treatment or fire systems, all these other systems and buildings. And maybe getting them to be data-driven doesn't necessarily result in direct energy savings, but there are a hell of a lot of embodied environmental costs in running those systems in an unproductive way. So yeah. yeah, the opportunity that we have to improve the industry via these kind of technologies isn't just unique and native alone to HVAC. Yeah, and that's another piece that's unique about you guys here too. So I think what I'm hearing from you is you're not just going into a building and saying, let's connect to the Johnson control system and collect all the air handling unit data. You're saying it takes a new way to operate a building, a data-driven way to operate a building. And the people who operate a building, they care about HVAC, but they also care about the elevator. And like you said, fire system and everything else. So you're collecting a lot more data than I think a lot of the other people out there are collecting. 
Yeah, and the use cases are different in every system and the value is different in every different system you apply this kind of data-driven framework to. But um, yeah, I mean, we started out like the rest of the industry. You know, we started out very focused on HVAC and pulling in energy meters and optimizing HVAC in order to get energy savings. Yeah. We very quickly saw that the scope of this isn't just limited to that one system. So now we've actually got the most dominant system type that we've got on our platform is actually refrigeration systems. Okay. Yeah, so, and we've, we've got... Uh, hundreds of elevators, we've got uh, water treatment um, integrations, we've got fire systems, and it's just, yeah, I mean, we can't, we can't afford to leave the rest of the industry behind and just have such a narrow focus. Yeah, and, and so my first thought as like an energy engineer when you say that is like, how do I justify like the payback on, say, connecting to the fire system when there isn't any quick energy savings that I can get from that? So how do you guys make the business case to sort of go through the extra effort on, on those other things? Yeah, it's a different business case. Yes. It is a different business case. And um, I mean, that's <clears throat> those business cases aren't well understood by like, you know, the smart building sector, or at least this segment of the smart building sector, because if you look at where people have come from, they've generally come from being systems integrators or uh, some kind of BMS backgrounds. So all this stuff is kind of new to, you know, a large proportion of like this, this segment. Um, but fire, I mean, without like giving everything away, right? Like fire systems, like it's about risk. It's about maintenance productivity. You know, when you're doing like these kind of full functional fire tests, how many times do you have to retest before you actually satisfy your, you know, your cause and effect matrix. And, uh, you know, it, and the risk question can be pretty significant depending on what um, the regulatory environment is in the country that you're operating in. Like in Australia, if there's found to be uh, negligence in the maintenance of a fire system, members of the board of directors of the company that own that asset can go to jail. Yeah. So okay. it's uh, the risk benefit can be very, very significant. Yeah. And, and depending on the workflow, this is how I teach it in the course, depending on the workflow, you then need to trace it back to those financial reasons, financial stakeholders for the people that are making the person do that workflow. Right. Right. And so yeah, the business yeah. case could be different depending on all, all of the different data streams you're collecting. That's really cool. Yeah, totally. And, uh, and there's, there's two ways to approach this. Do you want to directly drive actions or do you, do you want to just monitor something to see whether the actions downstream of that are being taken in an effective way? You know, me- measure the performance of like um, what's that, whatever services you're getting. There's kind of two different approaches. And how about like, I feel like a lot of the themes that have come up on this podcast are is like there's tr- this transition happening from collecting data so you can analyze a business's costs and hopefully optimize that versus the other side, which is how do I collect data so I can help increase the business's revenue? Like, is there, are there use cases that you guys are getting into sort of on that side? Well, I wouldn't say necessarily that um, there is a, direct correlation between the work that we're doing and increasing revenue but i would say that there's a direct correlation between the work that we're doing and increasing the enterprise value of the customers that we're working with okay and you know we're talking about um crossing the chasm and um what would need to happen in order to get wider adoption of this stuff one of the biggest problems is you know we're seeing a lot of smart building uptake in properties that are owned by REITs and you know unfortunately in that kind of landlord model there's like incentives that go in the wrong way in order for the landlords, the people that own the building to actually capture the benefits of um, what's being delivered. So yeah, there is friction in converting savings from analytics through to like NOI, which increases your property valuation. Now, if you look at other types of businesses that aren't landlord operated and maybe are more vertically integrated, 
it's much easier to directly tie savings. It's much easier for them to capture the value of the savings. And um, when you're talking about these vertically integrated companies, any kind of saving that you deliver, we're not talking NOI, we're actually talking about, um, you know, price to earnings ratio, which can be significantly higher, a significantly higher multiple in value compared to, um, you know, what you get off the, off the cap rate and NOI on building. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you guys are trying to create a SaaS product, right? That's scalable. I think there's a, there's a catch 22 here, which is if I'm trying to do only SaaS, then I might not be able to drive the results if I don't have the service providers out there, you know, actually making it happen in the building that I'm installing in on day one. Right. Um, how did you guys go from like that initial, we were developing this product and this product's probably not where we want it to be. And so we're going to prop it up with services to today. Like that's a huge transition from the other side, which is we're going full SaaS. We have this huge partner network built out, right? Um, how did you kind of navigate that transition? Because the reason I asked that is because I think that's where we're kind of at as an industry. Like we need to get a lot more companies kind of thinking about taking that transition, you know, for it to scale. Yeah. Uh, so like I said, we started it as a managed services company and, you know, we knew that the pathway was to transition from services into SaaS. Um, so very early on, we looked at ourselves as being the first customer of our software that we were building. Okay. So um, organizationally, we kind of treated our um, managed services business as a customer of our SaaS business. Okay. And then um, that enabled that as we brought on more and more SaaS customers, we had that kind of organizational structure in place, which then, you know, well, number one, we had a, our first customer when we started, so we were able to, you know, get good feedback on the, on the use of our product, but it also meant that we had the structure in place to be able to service SaaS customers as they came on. You know, we understood the customer success requirements and we had the expertise in-house to also help them get them get the most out of the product. You know, we had the, we had the product and we also had the expertise in using the product in-house, so it then became a... Um, Absolutely. Uh, capability that we had to help others get up to speed with getting results out of the platform as well. Yeah. And I think this is like a, a lot of the times, you know, SkySpark is one tool here, but I think this happens industry wide where if your business is like you're talking about making a, a strict decision at the beginning, like we have two businesses here. But if you don't make that decision, what you get caught up in is like, we are a services business and we have a services business model and all of our people are incentivized based on services. And like, you never quite grow out of you know, like thinking about it from a product standpoint, but what we need for this thing to scale is somebody to think about it from a product standpoint, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a really different mindset between a services business and a, and a product business in that every services contract is a little bit different. Yeah. And you can afford to have some customization in your product, but you can't afford to have a different product for every single customer that you have. Right. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a different kind of mindset and different kind of rigor that you need in your business in order to be successful at that, for sure. Yeah, I think what we're going to see is that the people that have made that scalable product decision early enough, they're going to have a lot better product at some point than the people that are just you know kind of dabbling in it. So how do you guys think about that today? Like making that decision a long time ago? Like, do you feel like your product is, is way better? You can brag. <laughs> um, I don't know. How do I humble brag a response to this uh, <laughs> question? <laughs> I, I guess I would say that um, my background as an engineer, um, you know, I guess I was effectively, you know, my, my DNA is to be like a user of this type of product. I'm not a software engineer. I'm a 
sustainability engineered by a trade like yourself. But that has meant that, you know, that that goes through the DNA of our, our whole company is that we've wanted to deliver a product that uh, we wanted to make a product that delivers value. And that's been of key importance to us. You know, we're very conscious of, you know, the conversion, like that complete flow from identifying something and then doing something about it and then even closing the loop and communicating what the value is of that um, action that you've done. So what, you know, in terms of strengths of our business, I think that's put us in a position where we've been very product focused um, in terms of weaknesses. You know, we've been very arrogant about like whether we would need to market or have a sales team and all that kind of stuff. So I think in some ways that's helped us, but in some ways it's hindered us, but at least we kind of recognize those kind of weaknesses now and we, we know we need to kind of work on that stuff. That's a good humble brag. That's a way, <laughs> way to point out a weakness just uh, after you point out a strength. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. Uh, talk to me about refrigeration a little bit. So it's not something I have done a lot personally, but I had to do some due diligence last year on refrigeration analytics and kind of that whole world. And I'll say it's fascinating because, you know, coming from these bigger buildings, you know, universities, K-12 offices, you have, the, you know, the big four and you're used to sort of the dynamics that happen in the buildings industry. And then you go into the refrigeration side of things and you realize there are different people involved, but all of the dynamics are basically exactly the same. So, basically like a copy and paste, like Honeywell or JCI or Schneider or whoever with like Danfoss and Emerson. And it's, yeah. yeah, it's the same kind of situation, exact same kind of market dynamic. Got it, got it. Yeah, so tell me more, a little bit more about that. I think one of the really interesting things that changes in the refrigeration space is the scale you know, and uh, is the different mindset and is the fact that you're talking like price earnings multiple rather than an NOI multiple, you know, so. And what do you mean by scale? Because the buildings are smaller. You, what do you mean by that? Um, more buildings, more buildings. If you've got a rate, maybe they've got a portfolio of like what, 20, 30, 50, maybe 100 buildings. Yeah. Um, if you're talking to like grocery or chain retail, then yeah. Hundreds. So I guess that's what I mean by scale. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, it leads to a whole bunch, it leads to a different approach that you have to take. And, and, and they have a different mindset. It gets away from the asset management mindset where it's like every building is an individual asset that I need to manage, right? And then mm-hmm. that leads people to take an approach where it's like, which I don't think is correct, which is like, it's a one-to-one. Like it's an asset, it needs a team to manage it. It's another asset and it's a team to manage it. Whereas I think where the industry needs to get to is, like we're looking at taking a portfolio view and looking at how best to service a portfolio rather than that kind of one-to-one relationship. Absolutely. And it's like, there's a tipping point of scale at where it's just like, it's not even like a business case anymore. It's like an IQ test as to <laughs> like whether you've got that different um, operational model in place. But I think like what technology is doing is lowering that barrier to entry, like that cross that tip over point about we're having a centralized operational model makes sense. And like now we're seeing a lot of REITs, at least some of our customers, I don't know about the broader market, but 
having centralization strategies around their operations. You know, they're, they're seeing the opportunity that comes from technology. They're seeing the, you know, the, the challenges that they're having um, with the, the talent pool in the industry and this kind of like, um, you know, this kind of perfect storm happening where they're realizing. And I think you, I think you talked about this in one of your other podcasts. Is like you've got that super user of the yeah. analytics platform. Yeah. Have a, have, a, have a small team of super users and give them the technology to scale what benefits they can give across your across your portfolio. Absolutely. Yeah, that's fascinating. I haven't thought about it from a portfolio perspective. You know, I've done a lot of grocery stores and just like the traditional, you know, the, the human analytics, like you said, uh, but hadn't thought about that from the standpoint of bunch of small buildings versus a few big buildings. Super interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, that, that's, the, that's the point, right? The point of what we're doing in in terms of digitizing building technology, you know, you're getting you're breaking down silos, right? you're breaking down silos in your system, and you're you're getting all the data into one place, and then you're applying platforms across the data, and then you know it'd be, you don't want to stop there. It'd be short-sighted to stop there. You know, then then it's about like given the tools that we've got, how do we uh, have the best structure around using those tools in order to get the most value. So I think it's the, it's the inevitable end goal or the inevitable end state that we'll get to is that property operations will be more centralized over time. Absolutely. More digital, more centralized. So talk to me about 2021. So first, the products, like where are you guys at from a product standpoint and what are you excited about uh, pushing out? Ah, oh, product. Yeah, I mean, I guess like with all this kind of craziness going on, it's been uh, helpful in that we've really been able to focus in on our product because... You know, we haven't been able to travel anywhere and get distracted by things. So, yeah, I mean, there's some really cool stuff that we've done. You know, there's a whole bunch of quality of life improvements we've made. Um, you know, it's all, it's all about being the most efficient to get from that insight to the action. So that's okay. that's great, great. You know, driving more actions with less clicks, you know, every seconds and hours that you can, or more minutes that you can strip out of a workflow means more time for people to take more actions, which means more value. So that's, that's great. You know, we've also built out, you know, an IoT stack. So we now have that native within our platform. You know, we've been working on IoT projects for a long time, but we've now actually productized that. Can you, can you define that what IoT stack means in this <sighs> case? <laughs> yeah, I'll start with IoT. And I guess like with IoT, I just mean kind of instrumentation, right? where, where you're installing an instrumentation system. Okay. And in terms of like what I mean by that stack, um, it's really like we've, we've productized it in terms of making it scalable within it, within our product. It's not something we're just doing as like one-off kind of custom solutions for people anymore. It's something that is now, you know, we, we can do that for everyone who's connected to our platform. Okay. So I want a CO2 sensor in this conference room. And yeah, and it, shows, it shows up in all the same, in the same place with the same, our reporting and all that kind of stuff and the same integration with our workflow management system and all that kind of stuff. It's not, it. it's not, not a custom project. It's, it, it's actual part of our product now. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Very cool. That's exciting. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a whole bunch of interesting use cases like that, that, are, that are exciting, you know, even outside of that kind of traditional commercial real estate space. Like <laughs> we've been integrating with like chicken cookers, bakery ovens, all kinds of crazy, crazy stuff. That you, I would never have expected to, to, to be doing when I, when I started out down this path. On the IoT side of things, I mean, that, those things are probably included in that, but uh, what are you seeing around COVID? And there's a whole IAQ, you mentioned separate solution. You mentioned part of your product, but you're also mentioning what it's not, which is a separate solution. So what I'm seeing is a lot of people are doing IAQ, basically adding a new silo. 
Um, yeah. So what are you guys seeing as far as the use cases around ventilation and people and space and that kind of thing? Yeah, um, one of the, so very early on through um, COVID, you know, lockdowns in Australia in particular were very, you know, thankfully they're, they're contained and most, for the most part they're over, but um, we still have snap lockdowns every now and then. Um, and they were very, very strict in Australia. So our customers have had to develop their capability to shut down their buildings, hibernate them and bring them back online. And so I, I guess like we took a different approach in terms of like what value we could deliver to our customers. Okay. Um, you know, what we kind of saw was that there were all these buildings being hibernated without the operational staff or the technicians visiting them anymore. Hmm. And that, you know, having some ability to provide some caretaker kind of oversight over the building systems, you know, look for kind of risk issues or, you know, if you, start, if you fully shut a building down for months and then switch it all back on, how to control for all of these, you know, reactive kind of breakdowns that you're going to have when you're switching the building back on. So, you know, we're looking for risk, we're looking for uh, maintenance optimization, you know, risk in terms of making sure all of the loops are flowing water through them, a minimum amount of time, you know, there aren't any dead legs because of closed valves and all that kind of stuff. Okay. You know, making sure that the, the, the mold have growing in ducts. So, um, and making sure air handling units and VAVs were opening and air handling units were running a minimum. So th th there were all these kind of, um, making sure that uh, different parts of plant were being exercised, I mean, ran, uh, were running at least a minimum amount um, so I guess our approach was to support our clients on the operations side and allow them to be able to hibernate and then spin back up their buildings and help support them in that kind of capability rather than focusing on the in indoor environment space. So that was kind of our solution to how to, how to help our customers. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's crazy how different you know, areas of the world experience things differently. Uh, yeah, you guys have, have had a much different pandemic than we have had in the U.S., um, well, I want to close off this conversation by asking you my favorite question. And if you said you listened to a couple episodes before, but you might've heard, heard my favorite question, which is, you know, kind of what's holding this, this industry back? Uh, why, are, why are we behind in terms of technology adoption compared to other industries? And, and how can we sort of unlock things? Yeah. Why are we so far behind? I don't know. There's so many kind of related, but independent problems that we have in the industry. You know, there's pressure around commoditization, you know, seeing, seeing operations as something to minimize rather than trying to look at what value you can generate out of it. And that's true all the way through the value chain from, like, from FMs to the contractors through the vendors that supply, you know, all of the above. Um, so commoditization is a problem and yeah, that kind of cost pressure never is going to give you the best, the highest value outcome. Right. Um, yep. And then, you know, you've got all these kind of perverse incentives where, you know, through the life cycle of a building, the development team has very different incentives than the people that are going to own and operate the, the building through its life, which then flows down throughout the rest of the value chain about people trying to get stuff in low, but then make them money, you know, through, through, throughout the rest of the building's life cycle. Right, right. You know, that, that whole dynamic around trying to optimize for a development budget rather than for a life cycle budget isn't helpful. <laughs> Uh, there's also the life cycle around development of buildings and the fact that people are making technological decisions like probably years in advance of when the buildings are actually going to be delivered. Um, and then while you're operating the thing, you know, there's so many people who build their business models around trying to externalize as many of the costs as possible. So you know, we've got that split incentive between owners and tenants where um, the owner who is in charge of the capital expenditure for the building doesn't necessarily have an incentive to operate the building more efficiently when they're just going to pass those costs on to the tenants anyway. 
or at least if they deliver any savings, you know, they're going to have to wait for a full lease renewal cycle before they see any of those benefits like hit their net operating income. So, all right. There's a lot of things that the so property industry things. doesn't have going for it that, <laughs> that, that stifle technology adoption. Uh, yeah, I, I had the feeling when you were given that list that you could just like go on 20 more. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, they're just stuff that all of us deal with every day. Uh, okay, so given all of those obstacles, you know, how do we sort of unlock things, I guess, is my question for you. Yeah, I mean, it's like you kind of raised this before in that, I mean, what we're doing definitely makes sense. What we're doing definitely creates value and solves a problem. And there is this opportunity to evolve like people's operational model to be data-driven and to be centralized. But like you kind of pointed out, the market penetration of these kind of tools is very, very shallow right now. So that's a very burning question is like, how are we going to go mainstream? How are we going to cross that chasm? And get get into that early adoption phase? Yeah. Uh, Because we're not not there. We're nowhere near that. Um, (laughs) And the, the tough thing for this segment of the market is that we're not only all trying to grow and get market penetration, like we're, we're, we're creating the market at the same time because most of the time people buy this kind of um, solution the first time they bought it. You know, we're really competing with the way that... Educate, yeah, the, the education is like what you're doing to sell it. You're not competing with some, usually. Yeah, exactly. You might be competing with a spreadsheet or you might be competing with like a calendar that's telling them this week, do this task, you know, these tasks, you know? So, absolutely. But I mean, the addressable market is huge, right? Like this is like a huge space. We all, we all know that. And, and if you look at other like established prop tech companies and the, like if you look at the Aconex and the Procores of the world or the Yardis and the MRIs of the world, like these, these guys have like, thousands of employees and there's no no FTD company out there with thousands of employees right. so there's definitely right. at a very early um, point in the journey towards like adoption of this stuff so I mean it really comes down to a few different kinds of problems that need to be solved okay right? like one, one is adoption right like how, how do we make sure that people actually get results out of doing this stuff how do we make that more scalable remove friction all that kind of stuff you know how do we get that adoption and engagement and how do we remove friction um, that's why it's one problem to solve. And the second is infrastructure. Like this is in no particular order, by the way. Second is infrastructure. Because okay. I really have the data sitting there ready to put this kind of platform onto. Okay. So, so um, the centralization of data problem isn't something that is widely solved already in the in the industry. Normalization, you know, speak for an hour just about that. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of like use cases in products that need to get solved for, right? Like, you know, stuff like, how do you have more confidence in and, and create a white list of issues that don't no longer need to, like to be triaged by a human before you're happy to do something about it? Like, I think a bunch of people have made huge mistakes trying to directly integrate uh, FTD in more analytic systems in with CMMSs and creating tens of thousands of work orders a day. It doesn't work. It doesn't to be very selective <laughs> and methodical with how you're doing this and prove the confidence of each individual role. Um, so, yeah, you're, so there's a whole what you're describing there is like a like okay I have this existing workflow I've inserted analytics into it but now really how do I re-engineer the workflow itself to start taking advantage of the the new tool essentially the new insight totally right like everyone's thinking about raising tickets who cares about raising tickets like well, what about like not releasing payment on a purchase order before you check whether an issue is actually fixed or not right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I feel like is we haven't got to that piece of the conversation yet in our industry, which is like, it's a great best practice to look at a workflow and how you're inserting technology into it. It's a whole nother conversation to say that, okay, now this tool exists. 
what should the workflow be, <laughs> right? Right, and, and totally just reimagine how the business is doing things, right? And, Not, and we haven't quite, I, I, I totally agree that that needs to get, that flip needs to happen before this starts to really go, go mainstream. Agreed, and that totally goes along with that theme of trying to take this from like a building by building solution and turn it in, into an enterprise solution. Um, because, you know, we've got to change that mindset. This is something I bolt on to my existing operations. So this is a tool that I build my operations around. And Absolutely. Extracting the most value out of it that way. You know, so that's, that's the whole triage piece. Like, how are you going to make triage better out of these platforms? Um, so you don't have to put like a human set of eyes over all these issues as they occur. There's the, there's the workflows piece. How are you going to get the workflows, the, 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 the information to where it needs to go in the most automated way? And how are you going to feed back from those workflows so that so you can ensure that you're adding more context into your uh, issues as you're iterating on them? And, and you know, the whole thing around like PCRs, problem causes and re remedies, right? Like the, you know, predicting costs, you know? So that's why it's not just a matter of throwing tickets in. It's also a matter of like, what can I get out of these enterprise integrations that I'm doing? And then, you know, so I think like that you, an example of that would be like, you have a hundred faults and they're leaking valve faults. And now you start to say, okay, well, 30 of them were stuck set screws on the actuators, like things like that. And you start to get, is that what you're describing? Is like you get, start to yeah, get exactly. data back from the field and start to use that to like make your diagnosis better. Yeah, totally. Get, okay. get, um, don't just get OT data, get business data as well. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, I think you've published a paper about this, you know, like taking it from fault detection down to that second day of diagnosis, right? Yep. And I think, you know, this is something that we've been, you know, strong advocates of for a while. We, we just described it as like root cause analytics, right? Um, okay. But, you know, in, in any building, there's hundreds of issues, right? That, that this is a very um, lean industry. There's hundreds of issues. There's hundreds of root causes. You're never going to get to all of them. Mm -hmm. um, what, like, why do I care? You know, yeah, there's a things broken. Maybe I've already learned to live with them. My budget's not going up anymore. All this stuff's already broken. Like, why do I care? Why am I going to do something about it? So it's about um, then understanding, like, if I have a certain goal, if my strategy has certain goals that I need to achieve, then I can start prioritizing, like, you know, based on what kind of outcome that I want to get, uh, you know, which might be, you know, it could be energy. That's a common one. Could be reducing maintenance costs, could be improving comfort, could be refrigerant leakage depending on what kind of like segment that you're in um but it's i don't think i don't think it's enough to just go down to like di diagnosis like that's definitely helpful and that saves like technician hours and fault finding what the what the issues are hmm. but um you know more importantly it's like understanding the context and then rolling that back up like you know and more context about like why and then rolling that back up to you know what your strategy is and kind of targeting things based on that absolutely yeah, so it's almost like another whole nother level around like portfolio level prioritization and yeah, the the why behind each fault. Totally. Like if you've got a goal, um, then just do everything. If you've got a goal to improve this one thing across your portfolio, then just keep doing everything else BAU that's kind of like plugging the leaks or whatever. And then just throw everything else at just to like be ruthlessly, ruthlessly prioritized on just whatever that one kind of organizational goal is, like whatever that public commitment is that you've, your organization's made, throw everything else at that. Just keep everything else going. Um, you know, maybe use the data to do a little bit smarter, but focus all your extra efforts and attention on, on that goal. Interesting. Okay. So 
yeah, I think that I think there's more layers that we need to go into um, with FDD. There's you know more of these use cases around integrating with enterprise platforms, you know, all all this kind of stuff. There's there's more to do. Um, and then we come down to I guess two other things we haven't considered. One is like the the organizational side of things. I think we've touched on that a bit. Yeah, having the right structure to support this stuff. Um, and then regulation also plays a part as well. Mm-hmm. We were really we were really fortunate in Australia. Uh, the, you know, I talked right at the start about neighbours as like the performance-based rating system. So very early on, the government said that they wouldn't lease any buildings that were, this is important for commercial real estate, maybe not so important for other areas, but commercial real estate is the one that has the problems of ex- externalities. Yeah. Like in Australia, you can't lease your building to a government tenant unless you've got four and a half stars energy rate, like performance energy rating you have to keep on maintaining. Um, you actually now have to publicly advertise what your energy rating is uh, if you're trying to lease your office space. So regulation, you know, you might have like your own views about whether the regulation is good or regulation is bad, but what it helped to do in this case was um, help to cut through those externalities and tie operational savings and operational performance back to the, the asset values. Because now if you're not maintaining a certain level of performance, then it means that certain segments of the market are open to you to lease to, which has a very significant impact on your property valuation. Absolutely. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, that's what set me down on down this whole rabbit hole of how can we go mainstream, right? So I, I posted this on LinkedIn and like the first 10 answers I got were all, we have to go to regulation. And it's, it's not that I think that's a bad thing. I think it needs to happen a lot faster than it is right now in other parts of the world. Like for instance, We've had like five cities in the U.S. that have gone to this, you know, benchmarking ordinance and then uh, energy reporting after benchmarking and then, you know, start rationing down the requirements, which is great, but it's not going to get us there as fast as we need it to go. And so there, there needs to be progress on the product side as well. So it's kind of like an all of the above thing, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. All right. What else you got on your list? Is that all the way through it? Those I think the thing, well, those I mean, are the things that'll go, it'll make things scale. Well, we, I mean, we touched on the organizational structure before, um, like while we've been talking, but you know, I guess I would just like imagine this, like, do, do like a thought experiment, like imagine like a really high scale property portfolio with a lot mm-hmm. of assets. Imagine this is a property portfolio that isn't able to externalize and pass on all of their costs. Yep. Uh, and then how would you like optimal uh, structure around supporting that? And like, this is, this is why I think centralization is the inevitable um, more and more people centralize in their operations. Centralization is the inevitable destination that we're going to end up at. And, and kind of describe for me what it looks like before centralization. So what I, what I know is that you have like a local building engineer, local maintenance team, local property manager, right? And then everyone else kind of looks at that building like it's their problem in a way, right? And, and they might get some reporting coming out from them, but it's really they're viewing it as like, yes, we have this portfolio, but it's really a bunch of individual entities. And so how does that change to this new model? Well, I mean, it's exactly what you described, right? It's like that one-to-one, like one team to one building. And that means they have a lot of competing priorities. They also had to, you know, probably don't have the expertise across all of the different engineering systems that they have to manage. Mm-hmm. And got a lot of fires to put out every day as well. So, you know, rather than um, only having that one-to-one, support them with centralized, specialized teams. Yeah, totally. so maybe a HVAC team, maybe a fire team or something like that, refrigeration team. 
to support them uh, and use technology to support them in doing their job better and in running the asset better. And, and another piece of that though, is the vendors as well, right? So you might have a different vendor at every building for each individual silo in the building. So the building in Melbourne might have Siemens and the one in Sydney might have Johnson Controls. And so you can't really centralize those guys because they're not going to service each other's stuff. And if they try to pretend they are going to, it's not a good idea. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I mean, I think that, Go ahead. That's why you need, if you're going to go across the whole portfolio, you've got to get a solution that isn't a vendor integrated solution. You need an independent solution. I mean, yeah. the whole reason for the analogy I always use is, um, you know, why, why, why are you going to let your kids mark their own homework? Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's exactly where I was going with this too, is that it, it has to be somebody independent, not tied to any specific silo where it's at now, basically. Yeah, yeah. You got to break down the silos, digitize it, have like agnostic solutions, and then have the right structure to get the most out of the what technology can do for you. Absolutely. All right, cool. Now we have the blueprint, and uh, the whole world can just follow along with what we've just. Yeah. <laughs> now that we've solved everything, uh, cool. Well, this has been super fun. Uh, yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for unpacking it with us and uh, educating. I'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, anytime, anytime. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.